Hey, welcome to Crosswalk Church. Today, Pastor Jeff is bringing you a teaching, so head over to crosswalkphoenix.com and find today's message under the worship tab. There you can download the Crosswalk notes to follow along. And now, here's Pastor Jeff. Good morning, Crosswalk again. As I said earlier, I'm Pastor Jeff, one of the two teaching pastors, and we're going through the book of Esther this morning. So I want to ask you to do a couple of things with me. Reach inside your program and pull out this white half sheet known as the Crosswalk Notes. Those are going to be useful to you as you go along. And this morning in particular, you might want to open up your Bible. Hopefully you brought one or uh, find your, uh, your Bible app on your phone and open it up to the book of Esther because it will help you to follow along in this story. This is one of the most dramatic stories in the Old Testament, maybe in the entire Bible. And I hope to convey some of that drama this morning. It was not my finest moment, not by a long shot. And you always know that there's going to be repercussions when parents come up to you and the conversation starts with words like, there's a reason that we send our children to a Christian school. And the way you acted is not in line with that reason. I definitely stepped back a little bit when those two parents said that to me as a high school JV boys coach. I was a teacher, assistant principal. And what they were referencing as they came up to say this to me was a halftime speech I had had with the JV boys. What you need to know about me is I'm extremely competitive. My wife, Julie, says that I practice competitive puzzle building. So, like, get out of the way if we're building puzzles. We are going to, it's, it's got to be competitive. So I'm competitive about everything. And I always, when I was coaching JV boys basketball, I always wanted my boys to compete. And in the first half, we had not competed. The defense, the defense had been horrible. People were missing their defensive assignments. We all always play man-to-man. There was no help. Uh, the offense, turnovers galore, and overall their whole play had been lacking in energy and lackluster. I said it wasn't my finest moment. Because in my mind, and maybe you've been there if you've ever coached, mentored, parented, In my mind, the level of their play was a reflection on me. And I was embarrassed. And so when we went into the room for our halftime, those poor little freshmen and sophomores got my best imitation of a Bobby Knight speech. Now, I didn't throw any chairs. I might have kicked one. But I definitely raised my voice. And I definitely made my point that I thought that they were not playing nearly as hard as they were capable of. And I definitely made the point that I expected better of them in the second half. However, I made that point. I don't think I did it really well. Because after the game, here were these two Christian parents standing in front of me and saying, we heard about your halftime speech. And pastor, there's a reason that we send our boy to a Christian school. We send him there because we want him to hear about Jesus. We want him to know about 
a God of mercy and grace, but we also want him to learn about how to respond in a Christian way to pressure, to getting behind, to, 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 to living in hope even when things look bad, and to compete, but do it in a way that brings glory to God. And from what we heard from our boy about your halftime speech, you didn't hit one of those four. Talk about stinging. I was stinging. And it took me a little while. But as I reflected on it, I realized that during the first half of that game and in that halftime speech, that wasn't my finest moment. It wasn't my finest moment because I had forgotten something really key. I had forgotten that my position as JV Boys basketball coach, not my possession, but God's possession. And so we're going to talk this morning about how important it is for us to understand that when we're given positions in life, and we're all given positions in life, that we never forget, as I did momentarily there, as I was struggling with my own embarrassment, that we never forget that your position is God's possession. And, and that you think through all the different positions that you might have in life. Now, a position can be a role that you play. For example, JV Boys basketball coach. It might be a role that you play much more naturally than that. Husband, wife, father, mother, brother, sister, child. It might be reflected in the nameplate on your desk or the one that you wear around all day on your chest. That might be a position that God has given you, but understand that too is God's possession. But positions go far beyond that. They go beyond roles. If you've ever said, how did I get myself in this position? You know that sometimes positions can be temporary things that are kind of painful. And, and you may, in the pain of being in that temporary position, forget that that position too, temporary and painful as it is, is God's possession. If you think at all about your family budget, you might be thinking at times about your financial position. You might think at times of risks that you take and say, I'm in a shaky position. I'm in a very risky position right now. And some of you, I know this is a fact, that you would consider your position right now, maybe because of a physical illness, as flat on my back. Whatever position that you're thinking of, I want you to go home with this singular truth. My position, whatever one of those you're thinking of, or several of them, my position is God's possession. And we're going to see that truth so uh, clearly taught this morning in the story of this young woman named Esther. Uh, It's almost a Cinderella story, but it's history. It's an orphan girl who rises to become the queen of Persia. So I'm going to have us run a video to kind of catch us up from where we left off last week with Pastor Dan, and then we'll come back in and, and talk about Esther and her story.
Israelites left Babylon, many returning to Jerusalem, and some heading to surrounding countries. An Israelite named Mordecai moved to a country called Susa with his adopted daughter, Esther. While they were there, the king of Susa, Xerxes, was looking for a woman to become queen. Young women from all over Susa, including Esther, were brought to live in the king's palace and go through a year of beauty treatments before the king would make his selection. When Esther finally got to meet King Xerxes, he was attracted to her more than any of the other women. So Xerxes placed a crown on Esther's head and made her queen. But Esther did not tell him that she was an Israelite, also called a Jew, because Mordecai asked her not to, fearing his reaction. One day, Esther's father Mordecai was sitting near the king's gate and overheard two of the king's officers planning to kill the king. So he warned Esther, and Esther told King Xerxes. The king's life was saved, and the two men were executed. Shortly after, King Xerxes promoted one of his men, named Haman, to a position higher than all the other officials. He commanded everyone to bow down as Haman entered each day through the king's gate, but Mordecai refused. When Haman saw this, he was furious and even more angry when he found out from some of his officials that Mordecai was an Israelite. So he looked for a way to kill not only Mordecai, but all of the Israelites living in Susa. He convinced King Xerxes to declare a law, stating that all Israelites living in the region would be killed on a specific day because they would not follow the king's laws. When Mordecai heard about the law, he tore his clothing and wept bitterly. He convinced Esther to go before the king, reveal that she was an Israelite, and ask the king to spare her people. There was one problem. No one not even the queen was allowed to come before the king uninvited. If they did, they risked being put to death. But Esther was brave and approached the king who asked, What is your request? Esther said that she wished for the king to host a banquet and to make sure that Haman, the man who wanted to kill the Israelites, was there. At the banquet, she would make her request known. When the day of the banquet came, Everyone, including Haman, was there. The king asked Esther what it was that she wanted. She revealed that she was an Israelite, a Jew, and begged for her own life and the lives of her people. The king was furious with Haman, who had convinced him to create the law and had him arrested and killed. Then King Xerxes not only removed the law to kill the Israelites, but gave all of them living in the region protection and rights. Because of Esther's bravery, the Israelites were spared and even honored. If you were here last week or if you've been here the last couple of weeks listening to these messages, maybe, maybe this story leaves you a little bit mystified because if you recall uh, Pastor Dan's message last week, the, the title of it was The Return Home. Didn't the Jews all return home from their captivity in Babylon and in Persia? And didn't they all go back? Well, the answer is, and if you listen carefully to the video, you heard it, really only 50,000 of the Jews, and there were hundreds of thousands of Jews living in captivity, only 50,000 of them returned with Nehemiah to build the wall and with Ezra to build the temple. 
most of the rest, well, Persia had become their home. They'd been there for 70 years. Most of them had grown up there, and they decided to stay. And today's story of Esther is the story of those who remained behind in Persia as those other 50,000 went back. And remember, the Jewish nation is serving a much greater purpose. We've talked again and again in this series, The Story, about an upper story and a lower story. Don't forget that God had promised through Abraham, the father of the Jews, that he would use his descendants and the promised land of Israel as the people and the place where he would send the Messiah who would one day redeem the entire world from its sins and and pay the price of the world's sin and live the perfect life as our substitute that we cannot live, that he would send his own son to do this for us. And the Jews, the Jews would be the people through whom he would do that. The Jews were to be a light in the world. And we, we heard how they, they, instead of being a light that pointed to God, they consistently were influenced and their light went out because they were influenced by the world around them and they were no longer pointing to God. And that's why God sent them into captivity. Now, it's interesting how this happens. Have you ever seen those pictures of a, of a, a little fish swimming along? And then a bigger fish comes and gobbles it up, but behind it is another fish and it gobbles that one up? This is that story. Because Israel and and Judah in their own rights were little fish who were gobbling up other little fish around them, uh, other nations around them, like like, uh, Aram and so on. But then along came a bigger fish named Assyria and gobbled them up and took them into captivity. Eventually, then along came an even bigger fish named Babylon, the empire of Babylon, and gobbled up Assyria and Israel and Judah. And then finally came the big shark named Persia and gobbled all of them up. Now, Persia's empire was vast. It stretched all the way from India. They had conquered the the nation that we now call India, and it stretched all the way into Greece and Egypt and all the territory in between. The, the kingship, the, the position of the emperor of this vast empire in, in the, the years intervening from where we were last year when the king of that, of that empire, Cyrus, had permitted those 50,000 Jews to come home, that kingship had now been passed to a new person whose name is Xerxes. And Xerxes is, this is a guy that is supremely confident and filled with himself. If you read in Esther chapter 1, you will find out that he was so full of himself and and thought so highly of himself that he set a six-month-long holiday to celebrate what? Him and his rule and his kingship and all the wonderful things that he felt that he was so benevolently bringing to the people. He said, you know what? Let's just have a six-month-long party celebration holiday to celebrate moi. At the end of that 180-day period, in chapter 1, we read on and we find out that was not enough for him. He said, now we need a week-long blowout bash 
where I'm going to invite all the officials from the kingdom and anybody surrounding that I haven't gobbled up yet, and I'm going to bring them in so they can see the splendor of my glory, my magnificent kingdom, and how wonderful of, a, of an emperor and ruler I am, and we're just going to throw a party. It says the alcohol flowed freely. On the very last day of that seven-day banquet, there was one thing left that Xerxes wanted to show off. His trophy wife. He had a beautiful queen. Her name was Vashti. And so she's actually throwing another party of her own to celebrate how great the king is. And when he summons her through messengers, she turns around and tells the messengers, you tell that so-and-so that I'm not coming. Oops. That's not a good thing to say to the Persian emperor. But the, the Persian emperor, Xerxes, did have some checks and balances. Chapter 1 tells us that he went and he talked to his advisors, only they didn't urge him to calm down. They kind of pumped him up. You know what they said to him? You know what, Xerxes? If you let this go, not a one of us is going to be respected by our wives. We're, we're going to be trying to ask our wives to do things, tell them what, what we need from them. And they're, not going to, they're just going to say, no, I don't feel like it. So you need to make this girl who didn't appear before you when you summoned her disappear. Now just think about that for a moment. Make the girl who didn't appear before you disappear. And that's what he does. She's gone. Now, it seems to indicate that there might have been a little bit of regret on Xerxes' part, but she was gone. All his advisors had told him not to do that. And, 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 and he did what they said. She's not coming back, but he's feeling sad, probably mainly about himself. I don't have a, a woman to call my queen anymore. So you know what he does? He goes back to the same advisors and he says, what am I going to do? I need a wife. I need a queen. And they said, well, you've got, a vast, you've got a vast empire. How many beautiful women must there be in this huge empire that you are emperor over? Let's hold a contest. And that's what they do. They, they hold a year-long it's, it's a, a combination between American Idol and America's Top Model for an entire year. And they bring in every beautiful woman they can find throughout the kingdom. One of them is a young girl, a young Jewish girl, whose Jewish name is Hadassah, but her, her Persian name is Esther, which means star. And she is brought in, and she is unbelievably beautiful. Uh, she doesn't tell anyone that she's Jewish. And she just goes in there, and we're talking about an entire year of spa treatments. Now, I like to say spa the way Phil does on, on uh, The Amazing Race, because if you've ever watched The Amazing Race, you know it's not pronounced spa, it's, it's pronounced spa. So she came into the spa for 12 months, and she was... You think we have nail salons here in Levine? No, I'm, t I'm telling you, they had everything available. She got pedicures, she got manicures, she got the best 
uh, cosmetics. She worked out with the best trainers, as did all these other beautiful women for 12 months. And her only thing was, at the end of these 12 months, my job is somehow to catch the eye of Xerxes. Let's take a look at the passage. Esther 2, verses 5 to 7. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair. So now, let me catch up with the characters. I want you to circle the name Mordecai, because Mordecai is going to play a very important role in in this story. We've heard so far of, there's going to be five total characters in this history. We've heard already about Xerxes, the Persian emperor. We've heard about the first queen named Vashti who disappears. We've heard about Hadassah or Esther, we're going to call her. And now we're hearing about this guy named Mordecai. If you caught it earlier, I mentioned to you that Esther grew up as an orphan girl. Her, her mom and dad, we're going to read that in just a moment, died when she was very young. I, I sometimes think it's so ironic how people who come to serve huge roles in life often have difficult childhoods, that they go through some really tough stuff as children. That was very true here. But what we're also going to see about Mordecai, and we have people like this in, in our church, he was her older cousin, and when her parents die, he takes her under his wing and treats her like a daughter. And God uses Mordecai, who's, who's a very devout man, to mold her and shape her because God has a plan for this girl, a purpose, and a position that he is going to place Esther in that's going to be a very important position where she can have influence. This man was named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. He had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, one of the medium-sized fish, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah, small fish. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Now, I, I find it extremely interesting as you read through Scripture that you, you start to see that, that God knows exactly where he's going to place people in their various positions in life. And he, he outfits us for those positions. And do you know where it starts? It starts in the womb. Read Psalm 139 where it talks about how God intricately knits us together in detail in our mother's wombs and fashions us. Now, look what he did. Look what he did for Esther as he fashioned her in, in her mother's womb. Even though mom and dad were not going to be there to raise her, God used her DNA to form her into a woman that he knew would grow up to be extremely lovely and beautiful. And why would he do that? Well, what was the role? What was the position that God had picked out for her to serve him in? He had to catch the eye of Xerxes. God already knew in advance that she was going to have to be very lovely and beautiful to catch Xerxes' eye. And so he started with her DNA and started to make her a person who would one day be a queen of beauty. 
But then God takes the events of her life and he begins to further mold her. Difficult circumstances when she's growing up, losing her mom and dad. And yet this gentleman, Mordecai, who comes into her life and and teaches her about the promise of the Messiah and teaches her how to live and how to have a a strong faith in God, how to be a, a woman of character, He mentors her and molds her. Now, I want to take you back to a series from from several months ago. Do you remember when we were doing the series Shift? That we said that God frequently uses different things in our lives to grow us into him because they connect us with the word, the message of God, the gospel message. And two of those things that we talked about were pivotal circumstances and providential relationships. That God will use situations and circumstances in our life that cause us to pivot or turn and then use those to mold us and make us the kind of person that he wants us to be so that we can fill the position that he has, he has out here in front of us. And then he will bring people into our lives who will lead us to him and lead us to see his grace and mercy and be a person of of peace, even in difficult circumstances. And know that we have God's constant and consistent love, but also know that we have the love of someone here that is constant and consistent. So I want you to write this down. God molds you for service in his kingdom through pivotal circumstances and providential relationships. And we see that right here with Esther. Nothing more pivotal circumstance than being an orphan. Nothing more providential relationship-wise than having an older cousin who will come in and love you and mold you. That's exactly what happened to Esther. Now, I I shared this with you already, but look at the next verse, Esther 2.12. Before a young woman's turn came to go in to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. Six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. In other words, what's happening here is is the the man who's in charge of all these women that the the king has invited in has to take the raw material that he's given now and he's going to shape it and mold it even further. Like I said, the best workouts with the best trainers, the best beauty treatments, the best spa, an entire year. Now, ladies, imagine this. Wouldn't this be awesome? An entire year, you do nothing else but get get beautified. All right, maybe some of you are not all that excited about that. But that's what happened. All with the idea of winning America's, I mean, Persia's next top queen. But look at what it says in Esther 2.15. Esther was not all that molding, all that shaping, all that knitting together in the womb. You know what it meant? It meant that she was not just beautiful on the outside. But this is a girl who was truly beautiful on the inside too. And this is emphasized many times over as being even more important than her outward beauty. Everywhere she went during that entire year, she won the favor. All the other girls liked her. Uh, Hethek, the guy that was in charge of all the girls trying to get them shaped up to meet the king, he loved her. And what do you think happened the moment Xerxes met her? Bam. He fell. He fell in love right away. And, and so 
she was able, because of the inward beauty of, of her soul and of her heart, to win people around her, even the people that she was in a contest with. This reminded me so much of what it says in 1 Peter chapter 3. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self. Will you circle those words? Inner self. That's the beauty God looks at. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Circle those words too. We're going to talk about those words. Which is of great worth in God's sight. Now this is where, this is where it gets really, really good. Because do you know that there is not a person in this room that, that lacks beauty? Every one of you is beautiful. And I don't just mean on the inside. Every one of you is beautiful also on the outside. And do you know why? Because God knit you together in your mother's womb. And God has given you pivotal circumstances in your life and providential relationships. And when he knit your DNA together, guess what? He gave you gifts, talents, abilities. Now, Esther needed to be outwardly beautiful to catch the eye of the king. That was the position that God was going to give her. But God knew in advance what positions he was going to place you in. All the way back to when you were growing in your mother's womb. And he began to fashion you with the beauty that he wanted you to have. So that when you filled that position, you could do it to bring glory to him. And to help the people around you. And that ultimately, you just have to remember one thing with the positions in life that you have. Your position is God's possession. And when you remember that, and when you remember that God has knit you together and molded you through life, through its experiences and relationships, to be in the positions that you're in, then you can truly serve him. Now add on top of that, that the Holy Spirit has called you into the kingdom of God. That as we just sang, you have become through faith in Jesus Christ an adopted child of God. That you know that your God loves you with an undying and unwavering and unfading love as your heavenly, what? Father. And you know what happens when you begin to really get confident in your identity? You find that pretty soon you have a quiet and gentle spirit like Esther did. And you become beautiful on the inside because you have what it says right there in 1 Peter 3 and 3, uh, 3 through 4, a gentle and quiet spirit in your inner self. You are beautiful on the outside with the, with the individual gifts and abilities that God has given you. And you're beautiful on the inside through faith in Jesus because, because of this gentle, quiet spirit. Do you notice that last phrase? Which is of great worth in God's sight. So here's what I, I would like you to uh, write down. God molded Esther and gave her both an outer beauty and the inner beauty of a quiet confidence in him. And he has given that to each person in this room too. 
the outer beauty of gifts and talents and abilities and the inner beauty of a quiet confidence in him. Now, why did God do that? Did God give you an outer beauty and inner beauty so that that you could say, serve us, serve me, so that you could be a little Xerxes in your own time and in your own kingdom? Think really highly of yourself. Did God give you that inner and outer beauty so that you could claim more for yourself? Or did he do it for another reason? Take a look at what it says. That very last verse on the bottom of page one. Now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. You see, what we're going to see as this story plays out is that Esther is going to be asked to step into a position that has tremendous influence and she's going to be asked to have great beauty and great courage in how she carries that out so that God can be glorified and so that people can be saved. You know what's interesting about this book? This book, Esther, I don't know if you know this, it uses a literary device that is really powerful. In that, in this book, you do not hear the name of God mentioned even one time. It's the only book in the Bible, in the entire Bible, 66 books in the Bible, God is not mentioned once. But guess what? Have you ever, have you ever had it happen where you notice something more because it's missing than because it's present? That it actually sticks out more like a sore thumb because it's not there? That's exactly what happens in this book because as the story plays out, there are way too many coincidences, way too many circumstances that line up just the right way. And it's clear that the author of the story is showing us the fingerprint of God again and again and again and how the story plays out. God is very present in this story and shows up again and again to help Esther and Mordecai in their positions. Now, do you know why you need to hear that? Because all of us need to know that God is going to show up for us. And that when we are given a position, God is not just sending us out there like some supervisor or boss who goes, well, you're on your own now. I've given you your position. Don't come back to me asking for advice or help. Just go do it. That's not how God acts. Because your position is God's possession He's going to take care of you because he's given you that position and it remains his possession even though you're in that position. And God wants us now to take hold of the position. Mom, dad, husband, wife, worker at our place of employment, church member, greeter, children's ministry, person who serves in the cafe, person who serves in youth, person who serves in the booth back there, person who serves up front here. All these different roles and positions, God wants us to use them for the common good. Jojo, you're right. His honor, his glory, and the helping and assisting of people around us. Turn your page over. Peter puts it this way. The end of all things is near. Each of you, meaning all of us, 
should use whatever gift you have received. Circle these words, to serve others. As faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. What Peter is saying is, you have received undeserved love. You've been graced to be forgiven, redeemed, restored in your relationship to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. You have heaven waiting for you as your eternal home. It's all yours. You possess it all through faith in Jesus Christ. Now use this grace to reach out and serve others and make a difference with your life. You are not here just to serve you, but we're all here to serve each other. So I want you to write down, As a recipient of God's grace, I now have an urgent task. Notice how it all starts. The end of all things is near. Don't wait. Do you know that not all opportunities last forever? You do know that, right? That in the business world, businessmen know this really clearly. That opportunities come and there's a window of opportunity. And if you don't step through that window of opportunity, when that, when that lifespan of that opportunity runs out, it's done, it's too late, the ship has sailed. And man, does that, it, what an, inc- <laughs> wow, to hear when you've had a fantastic opportunity to make a difference in the life of someone else. And, and then someone comes and says, sorry, that opportunity is over. The ship has sailed. That's why Peter says the end is near. The ship is getting ready to sail. We, we only have a limited time to grab hold of this opportunity. Take the position God has given us and the gifts God has given us and use them to serve others because we're recipients of God's grace. You have that written down as a recipient of God's grace. I now have an urgent task. Use whatever position I've been given to serve others. Let me tell you how this plays out in Esther's story. So Esther is chosen. She becomes the queen of Persia. This little Jewish orphan girl becomes the queen of this vast empire. Meanwhile, a really intriguing thing happened. This is one of the ways that we know God is, his fingerprint is is on everything. One day, her her cousin, the one who raised her as her dad, Mordecai, is sitting at the gate, and he overhears a conversation over here between these two guys, and they're talking about how they're plotting a coup against Xerxes. They're going to take him out, they're going to murder him, and he's gone. And they've got some help, and they've got some support, and they're going to do this to him. So Mordecai overhears that, and he uses his time. That's one of those window of opportunity things. And he sends messengers to Esther, and he says, this is what's happening. There's a plot against the king. You have to warn the king. The king does get warned, and he becomes aware that Mordecai is the one who has helped him and saved his life. And he issues a decree that Mordecai needs to be thanked. Now, meanwhile, here comes the fifth character. Remember, we've got Xerxes, we've got Vashti, the first king, we've got Esther, or the, the, uh, Vashti, the first queen, uh, Esther, the second queen. We've got Mordecai, the, the dad figure, the, the elder cousin, and now we get Haman. Haman is a guy who impresses Xerxes. He's just another guy in the kingdom, and he gets elevated to become 
something along the lines of the prime minister of the entire empire. He's, he's going to be Xerxes' right-hand man. And Xerxes literally wants him to be honored to the point where he says, when Haman walks into the room or when Haman walks the streets, I want all the people of my kingdom to get down on their nose. I want them prostrate before him to, to indicate that he is he's my man. And so that's the practice. When Haman walks around, when he enters a room, everyone's down on their face to pay homage to him because he's the king's man, except for one person. Do you know who that is? Mordecai. We don't know exactly why Mordecai refuses to do this. Maybe he thinks it's kind of like worshiping and he doesn't want to worship anyone else but God. Maybe he just doesn't have that kind of respect for Haman. We don't know why, but he refuses, and this infuriates Haman. So Haman decides that Mordecai is going to be taken out, but that's not enough. This guy is just as arrogant as Xerxes. And so he decides that he is going to provoke the world's very first Jewish holocaust. He's not just going to take Haman out, but he knows that Haman is a Jew, and he is going to have every Jew in the Persian Empire murdered. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Jewish holiday Purim. It comes from this story. Because to carry out his plot to cleanse the empire of the Jews, he throws some dice, casts some lots. A poor is a lot. To to choose the date when the massacre is going to take place. And so the the lot is cast, the day is assigned. And because Mordecai, being a man who sits at the gate, means he's kind of a guy who's well-respected, he hears what's happened. And this is a law that gets promulgated throughout the entire empire. And he immediately, because he's Jewish, puts on sackcloth and ashes and starts parading in front of the palace of the king where both Xerxes and, Vashti can, or, uh, Xerxes and Esther can see him. Eventually, messengers come into to Esther saying, you've been given this position by God. What are you going to do? Do you realize that all your people are, are going to be massacred? And by the way, the king himself does not even know that you are a Jew, and Haman doesn't know that you're a Jew. If you think you're going to be spared, you're not going to be spared. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been in a position similar to this. Even on a much smaller level, have you ever done this? I know I've done this, is that when someone calls you out and says, this is a position that you've been given, and now it's clear what you have to do to serve in it, and you start to second guess. You start to, all the excuses and the rationalizations start to come up about why you can't serve and why you can't use your position to help and, and why your position really isn't God's possession. I got myself here. It's my abilities, my talent. All that stuff starts to come up. It came up with Esther. You see, what Esther sends back out to Mordecai when he says, use your position to rescue the Jews, she sends back and says, Don't you remember what happened with Vashti? The king called her. She didn't appear, and she disappeared. 
And if there's one thing that's just as bad to Xerxes as not coming when you're called, it's coming when you're not called. See, that that was worthy of death too. When you went into a Persian emperor and showed up and asked to have an appointment with him, if he did not extend his scepter to you to touch, that meant you weren't going to get to talk and you weren't going to get to keep your life either. And she says to Mordecai, he, he hasn't even called me to see him in weeks. I don't know if I'm going to be able to help. So let's take a look. Esther 4, 12 to 14. When Esther's words, the ones I just told you, were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. You know what he's really saying? Remember, this this is using um, a literary device. God is not being mentioned, but he's really saying, God will save us. If you don't use this position that God has given you, he'll find another way. But you and your father's family will perish. And now I want you to underline these words. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Those are the critical key words in the book of Esther. Those are the words that we have to look at. Who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Think through the positions that you thought through earlier. Who knows but that you have come to your royal position for just such a time as this? Are you in a risky position, a shaky position? Are you flat on your back? Is there a health situation? Is there a role that you play? Is it a temporary situation that you have asked to yourself many times, how did I get myself in this position? I want you to ask yourself, who knows but that you have come to this position for just such a time as this, this royal position. You see, people throughout the Bible are put under great pressure like this. Paul says it, 2 Corinthians 1, 8, 9. Being in the position of an apostle, he says, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. Underline those words. You see, God puts us in these positions, and then he puts pressure on us in these positions so that we learn not to rely on ourselves, but on God's wonderful grace and on his promises and on his strength. But on the God who has the power to raise the dead. Write this down. All kinds of thoughts urge us to hesitate to use our position. You're going you're gonna to hesitate, whether it's hesitating to volunteer here at church or hesitating to step up as the husband or the wife or, or the worker at work or the neighbor. To step up and use your illness or whatever it might be, your risky, shaky position. God says, don't hesitate. Faith says, rely on God and act with courage. Can I tell you how this plays out in this story? Very quickly. So cool. 
how God shows up in this story. So Esther realizes she can't go directly to Xerxes. So she beautifies herself. She sends a message back out to Mordecai and says, we all got to fast and pray because I'm going in. I'm going to try to catch the king's eye. And she parks herself out the doors, outside the doors of, of the king's throne room where hopefully she can catch his eye and then he will invite her in and extend his scepter to her and say, what do you need, girl? And so they fast and they pray. She beautifies herself. She goes over there and she kind of strolls around in front of the door and Xerxes sees her and he says, come on in here. What do you need? And she says, because she knows you don't just go directly at these things with the Persian emperor. She says, you know, all I really need is I, I need you to come to a banquet with, with me, and I would like to invite your buddy Haman to come along. So the king says, that's all. Sure, let's do that. We'll have a, a little banquet, just the three of us. That'll be nice. Meanwhile, what's happening behind the scenes is that Haman is gradually getting more and more and more frustrated with Mordecai. He keeps encountering this dude. He won't bow down to him. So Haman goes... <laughs> And he talks to his friends the way Xerxes had talked to his advisors and said, what am I going to do with this guy? And, and his friends say, you got to make an example out of him. So he builds this huge gallows. And he lays plans behind the scenes that he is going to hang Haman on these gallows. And he's going to make an example of this guy. Remember, Haman does not know that Esther is a Jew. Haman does not know that Mordecai is her dad or her older cousin. So he plans all that out. They come to the dinner. They actually have a very nice dinner. At the end of it, the emperor Xerxes says, okay, I know you want something more than this dinner. What is it that you really want? And she says, well, you know, I'm not quite... I'm not really quite ready yet to tell you what I, what I want, but could we have one more dinner, just the three of us, you, me, and Haman? And, and he says, sure, let's do that. And so they plan the next dinner. The night before that dinner, remember, too many coincidences. Too many coincidences. God shows up again in the story. Xerxes can't sleep. And what does he do when he can't sleep? He calls his attendants in and he says, uh, bring me the book of the laws that I've written. And as he's reading in this book, he comes across this passage where he said, Mordecai saved my life. He needs to be rewarded and he needs to be honored. And he asks his attendants, these poor guys, they're up with him at 2 a.m. in the morning because he can't sleep. What have we done for Mordecai? And they say, you know what? I think that one kind of got away from us, king. And so he says, we're going we're gonna to do this. The next morning, he's up and out of bed. He wants to ask one more person his advice. So Haman strolls in. And Xerxes says to Haman, what should be done for the man the king desires to honor? And of course, what does Haman think? Haman, the man who's so full of himself, he thinks, oh, the Xerxes is going he's gonna, to he's gonna reward me for being so good. And so he says, here's what we should do, king, for this man you desire to honor. Remember, he's, he's uh, thinking of murdering Mordecai. 
Put the king's robe on him. Put him on a horse that the king has ridden, and let's, let's have a big grand parade. We'll parade him through the streets. Haman's thinking, this is going to happen to me? And the king says, good, I love that idea. Now Mordecai, you go lead out, or, or now Haman, you go lead out a horse and put Haman on it. Put, wow, I'm getting the names confused. Put Mordecai on it. And Haman's face just drops. He has to lead Mordecai through this whole city with the king's robe on. And at the end of that day, there's the banquet with Esther and Xerxes. And he sits down and they're eating. They're having a very nice dinner. He has no idea what's coming. And all of a sudden the king says, one last time, Esther, what do you really want? And Esther says, you know, there's this guy in your kingdom that wants to kill my people. And then she, 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 she brings it all out. I'm Jewish. And one of your officials has said that all Jews in this entire empire must be murdered, must be executed. And the king is outraged. Who's done that? Can you imagine being Haman, just like your fork is right about here? And, he, and the king gets furious and who's done that? And the story's all developing. Esther points right across the table. There's your man, king, it's Haman. The king is furious. He gets up, storms away from the table into another room. Meanwhile, Haman gets down at Esther's feet. He's begging her, please have mercy. And then they try to stand up. Remember, Xerxes is out. He's trying to collect himself. They stand up. As they stand up, they stumble and they fall. And Haman lands right on top of Esther. Just as the king has got himself all collected and walks back into the room. There's Haman laying on top of Esther. And the king's thought is, why is this? Is, does this man have no shame? Now he's even molesting the queen? You see how God's fingerprint is ever. There's just way too many quote-unquote, coincidences in this story. When you have been given a position, please know God is going to show up and he is going to help you throughout as you, as you take care of that position. And, and do you know who this reminds me of? Someone else whom God took care of in the position that he was given that allowed him to serve all of us and save all of us. Take a look at John 6, 38 and 39. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will. See, Jesus knew that his position was God's possession. I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Here's what I want you to write down. You and your position are both God's possessions. Imagine how many people we can raise up with his help. Just the way Jesus came down, used his position as God's possession, and raises us up at the last day. Can you imagine that with me for just a moment? What would happen to this community? If you saw your position as God's possession, what would happen in your neighborhood? 
If you saw your position of neighbor as God's possession, what would happen in your family? If you saw your position as mom, dad, child, as God's possession, what would happen at your place of work? If you saw your position as God's possession, what would happen in this church if all of us together said our positions are God's possession and he has formed me and fashioned me and chiseled me to be in this position, not to serve myself, but to serve others and raise them and lift them up. Can you imagine? Can you dream with me? What would happen if all of us saw that your position and mine are God's possession. Just the way Jesus did for you in the first place. Let's pray. Your Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you sent us Jesus to be our Savior and that he so clearly saw that his position as the Son of God and the Savior of the world was your possession. He came not to do his will, but your will because you sent him. And now, Lord, as we benefit from that, as we gain the forgiveness and the solid love and the eternal life that comes from his seeing his position as your possession, change our hearts and help us to go home with this thought firmly planted in mind. Whatever position we're in, this position is your possession, Lord. And help us to use it to bring glory to you and to lift and raise up the people around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. So before we close, if you would like more information about Crosswalk or to listen to other messages, just go online to crosswalkphoenix.com or come and see us. Services are held at 9 and 11 a.m. at Cesar Chavez High School at 41st Avenue Baseline. Visit our website for directions. And now, back to some closing thoughts from Pastor Jeff. Well, make sure you invite your friends and bring them on 3, 5, and 7 on Christmas Eve. Let me ask you one question before we send you out. Do you believe that God takes care of his stuff? You see, the whole story of Esther is that if your position is God's possession, that God is going to take care of his stuff, that he is not just going to leave you alone. The real hero of this story is not Esther, but God, who shows up every time that Esther needs him to show up and make sure that the entire nation of the Jews is saved so that the Savior can come. So let me ask you this question. If God really takes care of his stuff, and you believe that, what are you afraid of? Use your position as God's possession to serve and glorify him and help and lift up the people around you. Let me send you home with the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with his favor and give you his peace. Amen. Have a great week in the Lord, everybody. We'll see you out on the patio.